If you would turn with me in your copies of God's Word to Acts chapter 3. Last week we looked at the first ten verses of this chapter and we saw an encounter between Peter and John on the one hand and this lame man who was camped outside of the entrance of the temple. Peter and John were going into the temple to pray. This lame man saw them and asked for alms. And to that plea for help, Peter responds by saying, we don't have any silver or gold, but we will give you what we do have. And they give this man something much greater than enough money to buy his evening meal. Peter says to him, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And then he reaches down very impulsively, as Peter is known to do, and he grabs the man by the hand and lifts him up to his feet. And overcome with excitement and joy, this man goes with them into the temple, we're told, walking and leaping and praising God. We saw last week how Peter gives us a very helpful model for helping those who are in need. I'm not going to go into it again, but it's it just very simply to recognize this person, to see them, look at them, not just ignore them. And also to look past the presenting issue, to look past the plea for help and ask questions and attempt to identify how we might help this person the most. That's what Peter and John do. And as you would expect, a crowd gathers. This man had been a fixture at the temple gate. He'd been unable to walk from birth. It's very likely he'd been begging at this same gate decade upon decade. Everyone knew him. At least they were used to seeing him just sitting there harmlessly on his mat asking for spare change. But now he was no longer sitting, but walking and leaping. And the crowd was astonished. They began to gather and speak to one another and ask questions. Who is responsible for this? Who healed this man? How was he healed? And this gave Peter and John a gospel opportunity. Maybe you've heard cynical politicians say that you should never let a crisis go to waste. As followers of Jesus, we should strive to never let a gospel opportunity go to waste. That's what Peter and John had. They haven't had an opportunity to share the good news of Jesus Christ with these other Jews gathered in the outer courts of the temple. And Peter is going to preach a sermon and it's going a lot of it's going to sound very familiar to you. It's it's not going to be anything profound. It's not going to be anything new. But it's going to be very direct. Peter goes on to to preach that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and you are to listen to Him. 
If you do not, your sins will not be erased and pleading ignorance will not save you. There's nothing new. These are devout Jews. They are familiar with the Old Testament scriptures. Peter just shows them the fulfillment of them. This is not a sermon that it would get Peter and John an interview with Oprah or Katie Couric. It's not a sermon that will resonate within the halls of societal power as we see in chapter 4. It's actually a sermon that's going to get them locked up. But it's a true sermon. It's a gospel sermon. And praise God, there will be a lot of people who hear it and respond in faith and repentance. But before we look at this second sermon from the book of Acts, let's pray and ask for the Lord's blessing on the preaching of His Word. Father, send Your Spirit to us that we would be given illumination, that we would be given light and true knowledge of the good news that is available in and through your Son, Jesus Christ. This is your word. It is living and active. Give us ears to hear it this morning. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 3, beginning in verse 11. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power and piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers, But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive 
until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You were the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying in Abraham, in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. The healing of this man who was unable to walk has given Peter and John the opportunity to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're told the setting was in Solomon's portico. Depending on your translation, it might be Solomon's colonnade, Solomon's portico, Solomon's porch. It's all the same place. It's an area that is covered. It has a roof, lots of columns and a roof on the outer parts of the temple. It overlooked the city and served as a good location for people to gather and speak together. If you happen to remember, this is actually the very same place where Jesus was almost stoned back in John 10. Jesus made that famous statement, I and the Father are one. And the Jews that were present picked up stones to stone him, thinking that he was uttering blasphemy. Peter and John would have been there with Jesus that day in Solomon's portico. And with Jesus, they escaped with their lives. And now, here they are, back at that very same place. I'm sure the memory of that day was was still in their minds. And I'm convinced that if left on their own... Apart from the working of the Spirit, they probably wouldn't have done anything at all. They would have probably silently just walked in, said their afternoon prayers, and walked out. But the Holy Spirit was with them, and he gave them the boldness they needed to proclaim this gospel. The very first thing they have to do is to direct the praise and the worship of the people to the right Individual. All those who are gathered, they are shocked and they're amazed and they're impressed that this man that they were very familiar with is now walking and leaping. And here they have Peter and John. They seem to be responsible for it all. The natural response here would be for the people to direct praise and adoration to Peter And John, the two men that this now healed man is clinging to. But Peter puts the brakes on that from the start. 
He says, men of Israel, why are you staring at us? This man is not walking because of anything special about us. What does Peter say? Our own power or piety did not cause this man to walk. We don't have some superpower, some hidden power that you don't. We, it, it doesn't come from our own personal holiness. We aren't some new prophet or spiritual guru. This man is walking solely by the power of Jesus Christ. And let me tell you more about him. Before we look at the description that Peter gives of Jesus, there's a quick application. And it involves the practice of deflecting praise upwards. What do you do with the praise you receive? I know you receive some. You are a praiseworthy group. What do you do with that praise? What is your normal response when you're praised? I imagine there's a wide variety of options here, just as various as as all of us. Probably several different categories. It's possible we just absorb all the praise unto ourselves and it puffs us up, makes us feel good about ourselves, makes us proud, maybe makes us feel superior in some way to others. Maybe in some sense of faux humility, we deflect the praise to others Co-workers, maybe your spouse, those around us, we just direct it straight to them. Or maybe by the working of the Holy Spirit, we respond like Peter and John and we direct praise upwards to God. People praise us and we thank them for the encouragement, but we deflect their praise upwards where it belongs. To our Lord and Maker, who is the source of all blessings and gifts. Something for us to think about. How how do we process the praise we receive? Well, all of the praise directed at Peter and John ultimately belong to the Lord Jesus. And Peter tells them this and then says, let me tell you more about this person. And notice that. As Peter is speaking to these devout Jews in the temple, he's going to use language that they are very familiar with and language they would understand and recognize. He begins by saying that this Jesus was glorified by the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers. The same God who made covenant with Abraham, the same God who led the Israelites out of Egypt, The same God who brought the people into the land of promise. The same God you read of in the law and the prophets. That's the same God who glorified Jesus Christ. Peter's saying, I'm not bringing some entirely new religious system to you. I'm not trying to draw you away from the God of your fathers. I'm simply pointing to Christ as the fulfillment of all those promises. He is the one that all the Old Testament faithful looked ahead to. And then he throws out a word that we probably read right over. 
It's, it was a word that carried significant weight in Peter's mind. It's a word that would have stood out to these devout Jews. He says, the God of our fathers glorified his servant. What was Peter thinking of? Maybe Isaiah 52 and 53. Especially in light of what we see Peter say next. And I just want to read this for you. I think this is a text. We cannot read too much. I'm going to start in Isaiah 52, 12 and go through 53, 13. I'm sorry. Yes, uh, 52, 13 and 53, 12. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see and that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was rejected, despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, And there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, 
and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. We see the weight behind that word, servant. This suffering servant passage would have been fresh in their minds, and Peter is seeing that, see this servant in the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. He is the one spoken of by Isaiah. He was disowned. He was handed over to the Romans. He was forsaken, rejected by his people. And he died to make atonement for sins. This is the servant that God your father, that the God of your fathers glorified. This is the one whose name and power raised this familiar beggar to his feet. He's the one you should be praising. He is the holy and righteous one. He is the author of life. He's the one God raised from the dead. Listen to him. Well, the problem is that we don't listen. Both by our nature and our choice, we stop up our ears and we hear what we want to hear. These people were no different in the first century. And after telling them about Jesus Christ, Peter makes this very personal and begins to tell them more about themselves. Notice he uses the pronoun you four separate times. You delivered him over and denied in the presence of Pilate. You denied the holy and righteous one. You asked for a murderer to be granted to you. You killed the author of life. You can begin to see here why Peter and John wouldn't have been invited to be guests on Good Morning Jerusalem and talk about this new spirit-filled movement that was sweeping across the city. He confronts them with their sin, and it's more than just corporate guilt that he's imputing to all his personal. You did this. You wanted the life of a convicted murderer to be saved while at the same time demanding that Pontius Pilate kill the author of life. There's some sick irony there. It's complete upside-downness, completely backwards, wanting a murderer to live, but wanting the author of life to die. You know, I think the more we think about this and we consider the rebellion of humanity, the same backwards irony is in all facets of life. I mean, you think of the rebellion and the path we choose going our own way rather than walking in obedience with the Lord. And it's, it's all... It's all just sick backwards irony. It's no, it's no different than what Peter points out here. The unbelieving world will view the freedom we enjoy in Christ as slavery. And yet, 
slavery to sin and the flesh is seen by the world as freedom. Apart from the work of the Spirit, we will be those who side with Barabbas and despise our Maker and Redeemer. That's who they were, that's who we are, those who are guilty before God and in need of having our sins erased. Now notice, ignorance is not an excuse here. Peter says in verse 17, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers. You you didn't know who he was. You didn't know what exactly you were doing. But that does not remove your culpability. Ignorance does not excuse your sin. It will not excuse our sin. Ignorance is not going to get anyone past the judgment seat of God. There's an illustration Bunyan gives of this, and you high schoolers, this is fresh in your minds, I'm sure. The the very last thing we see in Pilgrim's Progress is ignorant. Or is it ignorant or ignorance? He's making his way up the hill on his own without the assistance of the angels, and he gets to the gate And he knocks, presuming that he will be accepted by his own merits and his own righteousness apart from Christ. And that's not what we see. There's a picture of him being carried by angels away from the heavenly gate and taken to the place of destruction. Ignorance does not remove culpability. What Peter is showing them here in this lame man who was healed, he's serving as an illustration. He's saying you may be able to walk, you may not be in need of physical healing. In your own estimation, you might be the epitome of physical perfection, but you do need spiritual healing. And that spiritual healing comes only through faith In the name of Jesus Christ. We see that in verse 16. Clinging to Him and Him alone for your standing and acceptance before a holy and just God. Peter keeps this personal. He directs it at the individual and he says, Repent therefore and turn back. By repent, he's telling them that there has to be an acknowledgement of your guilt. There has to be an acknowledgement of your need that you have committed grievous sins. Repentance is also a hatred of that sin. It's a desire to change and to sin no more. It's a belief that in Jesus Christ there's cleansing. Peter gets very personal when he tells them to repent and turn back. These words, turn back, in the Greek literally mean flee to God. So Peter is saying, in essence, repent and flee to God. And that might be surprising for us to hear because it is not our natural reaction when we're confronted with our sin. What is our natural reaction? What do we usually do? Well, the same thing our first parents did. We try to hide and cover our shame. 
But what does Peter say? Repent and turn back. Repent and flee to God. How do you deal with your sin? Do you use the whole, well, I'll just clean myself up. And then after that, I'll get back into church and approach God. Or there's also the approach of, you know, I'm just going to lay low. I'm going to wait for this to blow over. We can just pretend like this never happened. And then once my feeling of guilt has subsided enough, I will approach God again. Now, Peter rejects both of those two approaches. He says, repent and flee to God. Don't hide from him, run to him. There's an image here that would have been in Peter's mind and in the mind of these first century Jews of these Old Testament cities of refuge. I don't know if you remember those. These were cities set up by God. And if you accidentally killed someone, an act of manslaughter, you could flee to one of these cities and be protected. This was to keep retribution from going back and forth family to family. I accidentally killed your brother, so... You kill me, and then one of my family members kills you. It, just, it was meant to stop that back-and-forth violence. Now, if you committed murder, you would be tried and judged accordingly. But in an act of manslaughter, you could flee to one of these established cities of refuge and be protected against retaliation from a relative of the deceased. You could flee there and be protected. And you could stay in this city. You had to stay there until the high priest died. Once the high priest died, you would be free to go home. That's the image that is in Peter's mind. As he's speaking to people that he has pointed at them and said, You are guilty of killing Jesus Christ. I know you did this in ignorance, but you are guilty. And he instructs them to flee to a greater and better city of refuge. Where they could find forgiveness of all their sins and live. If only they would repent and take up refuge in Jesus. And look what follows this repenting and turning back in verse 19 and 20. That your sins may be blotted out. That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And that he may send the Christ appointed for you. Now that first part, your sins may be blotted out, is pretty self-explanatory. That's easier for us to grasp. It's cleansing that comes through us. You think of a... A jar of ink spilling out onto a paper and the ink. Uh, that same ink has been used to write on the paper. And the spill, the spilled vial of ink completely covers all the words so that they're indistinguishable. That's the blotting that comes, that our sins would be blotted out. But Peter here in these last two, the times of refreshing that come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Peter is talking about that final day of judgment. That's what he's referring to, this last day when everyone will give an account 
before the judgment seat of God. I've got a slightly lengthy quote from John Calvin, but I believe it'll be helpful. Calvin says, quote, Here Peter sets before them the day of judgment, so that his previous exhortation to repent and turn back would have greater effect. Nothing troubles our conscience more than to know that we will have to give an account to God for all we have done. So long as our senses concentrate on this world, they are dulled. But the message about the last judgment must ring out like a trumpet, calling us to appear before God's judgment seat. Once we awake to this, we start to think about a new life, end quote. You know, I've, I've been at the beach this past week. I tried my best to shut down and rest and enjoy time with Molly and the girls and uh, to not think about the real world. I'm just really seafood and, and sand and swimming pools. M- many of us live all of our lives that way. As Calvin said, we, we live dulled by the world, never thinking about things above, never thinking about the things of God, never thinking about the things that hold eternal ramifications. But here Peter is calling them to wake up, to shake off spiritual sloth, to repent and flee while there is still time because a day is coming where those who have fled to Christ will find refreshing. A day is coming when, the, as Calvin says, the heat of all our troubles will be absorbed and our miseries will be ended. A day is coming when those who have trusted in Christ will be granted salvation. And those who embrace him will receive the reward of their faith. But it's also a day where those who reject him will be punished for their unbelief. Peter is sounding the trumpet here, reminding them and us that one day, someday, our Lord will return. And on that day, the object of our trust will be revealed. Who are you trusting in? Have you continued, have you and do you continue to repent and flee to Christ? One last thing Peter communicates in this sermon. He's reminding these devout Jews that he's not saying anything new. If they're familiar with their Old Testaments, the Law and the Prophets, this is something they knew already. All of the prophets spoke about the Christ He quotes Moses from Deuteronomy 18. The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to the Christ shall be destroyed from the people. Who is Moses speaking of? Speaking of Jesus. Peter continues. Not only did Moses speak of him, all the prophets did. Samuel spoke of him and every prophet who came after Samuel spoke of him. He is the answer and fulfillment of all God's promises, even God's promise to Abraham. That in him all the families of the earth are blessed. They should have known this. They should have seen this. 
that Jesus is the culmination of their own story. He's the answer to the hope of their fathers. He's the fulfillment of all God's promises. The only problem was that Peter here is speaking to devout Jews. Remember where Peter is. He's not down in the slums. He's not on Skid Row. He's not in some back alley. He is in the outer courts of the temple. And he is telling people who saw themselves as faithful followers of God. He's telling them to repent and flee to God. I'm sure the very idea that these devoted people would have to return to God was unthinkable to them. Why do we have to return to God? We've never left. It's important for us to see who Peter is preaching to. In this specific context, he's not preaching to prostitutes. He's not preaching to swindlers. He's not preaching to tax collectors. He's preaching to the religious folk, the church people, the moral majority of Jerusalem. He's looking them right in the face and he's saying that you are in desperate need of the grace of God. And as church folks ourselves, we better not hear Peter's sermon And think about everyone out there that this applies to. It applies to us, those of us sitting in these pews on Sunday morning. We are also in desperate need of His grace. And that grace is available. It's available to them. It's available to you. How comforting it is to think that the same people who called for Barabbas to live and the author of life to be killed... They are being offered forgiveness. There's an offer that their sins be blotted out. I hope that's a comfort to you. This is the second sermon recorded from Peter in the book of Acts. Some might hear these words and think they're insensitive or harsh or offensive, but they're true. They had denied the Son of God and called for his death. There's guilt for us as well. We are a part of that mob until we ourselves turn and flee to Christ. We'll see the response to the sermon in the next chapter. There's two responses. One is positive. There's a mass group of people that flee to Christ and come to faith. And then there's also a negative response where the religious authorities have Peter and John arrested. What is your response to Peter's call? To be puffed up and offended or to repent and flee to the God who freely offers forgiveness? Let's pray. Father God, would you continue day by day by your spirit, to strip away the pride residing in our hearts. Would we be those who are characterized by humility, 
characterized as those who are completely aware with full clarity of our need that is supplied in Christ. Father, would we see Peter pointing at ourselves and our own hearts and the guilt that resides there? Father, would we be given the gift of repentance and respond and flee to the place of safety? Father, would we know that this life now is not all there is, but there's greater life coming. One day, someday, our Lord will return and we will enjoy fellowship and blessing with Him forever. And that all of the worries and cares and troubles and afflictions of this life, the, the worst that the world can throw at us, will not compare to the glory that is going to be revealed. Father, would that hope, the hope of glorification, keep us going? Would it, would it drive us on? We ask this in the name of our Lord and Savior. Amen.